0: All right. Good evening, comrades, and welcome to the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. Today is July 6, 2023. It's the only class that we have this week because July 4th was our 247th Independence Day, and we wanted to give the comrades that day off uh, to celebrate those festivities. Uh, Before we get started on our class tonight, which is going to be continuing on the American Revolution, we can go ahead and get started.
1: We're continuing the American Revolution, where we left off last time was the signing of the Declaration of Independence. This time, we'll be going into the finishing the um, with a synopsis of the Revolutionary War up until the Treaty of Paris, briefly summarizing the period under the Articles of Confederation and drafting of the US Constitution and the significance of our Constitution, And then we'll end with uh, polemicizing against uh, ultra-left narratives being spread about the American Revolution being a
2: counter-revolution. So uh, the Revolutionary War. So just to recap the start of the Revolutionary War, there's a little timeline over here that shows the progression of events. The First Continental Congress was held in 1774. It culminated in the Continentals Association, which banned British goods and called for the fundamental rights of Americans. The Battle of Lexington and Concord in 1775 marked the start of the war. During this time, the British governor of Virginia, Lord Dunmore, offered freedom for those who entered British lines. Thousands of slaves would seek freedom. However, a small number fought on the patriot side. This was purely a strategic move for the British. The Second Continental Congress was held in 1775. This Congress led Americans through the war and established the Continental Army, led by George Washington. In July of 1776, the Declaration of Independence was adopted by the Second Continental Congress. At this point, loyalist sentiment was still quite strong in some areas. Nationalism would grow over time. The British return. Forced out of Boston and having regrouped in Nova Scotia, the British attacked New York in July and August of 1776 taking the entire city as well as New Jersey, pushing Washington's troops into Pennsylvania. John Adams and Benjamin Franklin attempted diplomacy with the British at the Staten Island Peace Conference on September 11, 1776, but the British wanted the Americans to rescind the Declaration of Independence, which they would obviously not do, and negotiations ended with British seizing New York. In December 1776, Washington's troops crossed the Delaware River into New Jersey and launched a surprise attack on a troop of Hessians at Trenton and Princeton. This victory revived hopes of winning the war. In 1777, the British failed an invasion from Canada as well with the Americans winning the Battle of Saratoga. The war becomes international. In 1778, the US and France signed the French alliance which declared that neither France nor the U.S. would make peace with Great Britain until U.S. independence was recognized. French financial and military aid was crucial in winning the war. The French saw the colonists' defeat of British in New Jersey and Saratoga as a sign that Americans could win, and realized this would weaken Britain, their rival at the time. British troop numbers in America are then decreased to protect other colonies. American forces seize Philadelphia back after a brief period of British control. French and American forces attempt to work together to seize Newport, Rhode Island, but fail. The British, for their part, turn to attack in the south and seize Savannah, Georgia, and the Georgian coastline. Americans seize Fort Vincennes in the far west and what would now be Indiana, the southern battles. In 1779, Spain, an ally of France, declares war on Great Britain, but does not recognize the independence of the colonies. They see the war as an opportunity to regain Florida, which was lost in the Seven Years' War years earlier. In June of 1779, French and British naval forces fight in the Battle of Grenada in the West Indies. The French win and attempt to blockade Savannah next, but are defeated by the British. The British then take Charleston, South Carolina in May of 1780, and the Great Army of Cornwallis then marches for Camden, North Carolina, where the colonists are again defeated in September of 1780. This is part of a broader strategy of the British to maintain control over southern colonies, as Pennsylvania and New York were at stalemate. The Battle of Yorktown and the End of the War Cornwallis regrouped at the North Carolina coast and then headed up to Yorktown, Virginia. The French forces from Newport traveled down to join American forces at Yorktown. The French Naval forces then began a blockade of Chesapeake Bay, which began the Battle of Chesapeake Bay and French forces won. In October of 1781, the combined force of Americans and French assaulted Yorktown, overwhelmed the cornered forces of Cornwallis and secure the city and Chesapeake Bay. Following this, the war continued, but Great Britain was secretly beginning the peace negotiations and preparing for a surrender in 1783 with the Treaty of Paris, ending the war and securing victory for the American Revolution. Treaty of Paris and the Aftermath. The Treaty of Paris officially ratified the independence of the 13 colonies in September, 1783. Canada remained a British province and began to develop separately as a US neighbor. As early as 1782, an estimated 100,000 loyalists left to settle in Britain, Canada, and British colonies in the West Indies. The loyalists who settled in Canada would have a large impact on developing Canada's national identity. About 15,000 of these emigrants were African-Americans. Some of them settled in the British colony of Sierra Leone, Africa, and to the right there is a map of uh, Sierra Leone. In 1784, the Treaty of Fort Stanwix was signed. It required the four Iroquois nations, which had sided with the British, to give up tribal territories in western New York and Ohio Valley. Although the treaty recognized the land rights of the Unitos and the Tuscaroras, which allied with the U.S. during the war, eventually they were also pressured to give up their lands. And that's a the uh, Treaty of Fort Sandwich.
0: All right. And with that, we have our first round of questions and comments. Uh, So you can go to the reactions button and then press raised hand. Might be three dots and then raised hand. And on the phone, if you're calling in, I think it should be uh, star nine and then star six to
3: unmute. Okay. This is a very important class. Lenin, who knows much more about Marxism than anybody else that I know of, made it very clear about the American Revolution. He called it a great thing. He said, it was revolutionary. It was a fight for national liberation and we got rid of the monarchy. That was revolutionary at the time in 1700s. All the rest of Europe was ruled by a king and the other colonies that the European countries had were all ruled by kings. So on that alone, Lenin makes it clear, contradicting the new left petty bourgeois radicals that have come around almost 270 years later and try to reevaluate what Lenin said. He made it very clear. Afrika, a world now Marxist for years has the same opinion. I think this is important for uh, this school and us to come out on the right side of history. There have been slanders against the revolution by both ultra-left radicals and by petty bourgeois reformists who try to say it was nothing big, nothing, and yet it was everything. So the attacks against what they call socialist patriotism is really what Lenin was talking about that we have to be proud of what we accomplished in 1700s. That doesn't mean it was a perfect society. It doesn't mean it had blemishes all over the place, but it was on the right road to get rid of the king. Thank you.
0: Thank you, comrade. And I just wanted to add real quick that Marx also upheld the American Revolution at the time and said that you know the contradiction where the country still had slavery after the Revolutionary War led to the Civil War later which was another justified conflict that we have and that we uphold
4: I, what I have to say is um I uh, as something that I think uh, the uh, and I know the French uh, offered to supply us with their uh, Navy during the war and the Navy sometimes uh, takes uh, credit for winning the war but uh, uh, what, what role did the Navy play I know
3: the
0: French offered some of their ships for the Americans. Yeah, I can answer that somewhat. And if anybody else wants to uh, give an answer, they can. I believe at the time, you know, the militia forces didn't really have a navy built up. Um, They had merchant ships and that was about it. They weren't um, quite as strong in a lot of the coastal cities during the colonial period. But France actually did have somewhat of a navy. And they lost some battles and they won some battles. But them being able to blockade something like Chesapeake Bay was a very good strategic move in the war because then British couldn't reinforce their armies that they had sent to different places. And during the war, the British had their troops being sent all over the place. They really didn't have it organized. I mean, at one point when the French came into the war, the British started to send a lot of their troops to their different colonies around the world, and meaning that they didn't have as many on the front lines in North America, um, which contributed to their loss. But I hope that answers your question.
5: Yeah, I just wanted to uh, touch on this in the sense that history, historical events that have progressed, history in some type of way, you know, in the history books all throughout the world they do talk about the American Revolution and the influence that it had. You know, a lot of the ultra-left want to attack it as counter-revolutionary or this and that. But then they defend Bolivar in South America, who was directly inspired by the American Revolution. You know, then they attack all of these other revolutionary leaders and because of their support for the American Revolution as well. I've seen both of it from the ultra-left. You know, people who attack Bolivar as being reactionary, but then at the same time, too, they praise modern Venezuela. Kind of weird. You know what I mean? It's, it's interesting. But yeah, I just wanted to bring up the influence of the American Revolution worldwide. That's it.
0: Thank you. And it also just you know reminds me that even the revolutionaries that we follow weren't perfect people. Um, there's definitely things that they did in their lives that were mistakes or that we might not agree with, but they still serve their purpose. And that's why dialectically we recognize them as being progressive figures.
6: I was going to pretty much mention that uh, in regards to all the other international revolutionary figures that's recognized the American Revolution, you have quite literally all of the big heads of theory, all of the uh, leaders of the revolutions of the world. Like you can quite literally just name anyone off the top of your head and they do have something good to say about the American Revolution. Now, they might not have something good to say about the American, you know, the America at their point in time, but they all regard historically speaking that. The revolution was a progressive step in the right direction and that, you know, it's our job as Americans within our own imperial core to move it further into the right step of history. And ultimately, what we have to look at is that every single communist revolution that has occurred, occurred in places with significant histories of their own and also absolutely bloody in comparison to our own. We could look at the Russian Empire and how devastating that was. The Chinese Empire and all their dynasties and how brutal they treated the peasants. You could look in the Vietnamese tribes in the past. You could literally just look at history everywhere. And it's just one of those things where you have to understand that you're fighting for the people, not necessarily for the flag. That's all. All
0: right. Thank you, comrade.
7: Yeah, so living in Philadelphia, I have the privilege of having access to a multitude of museums, uh, my favorite of which, uh, though, is the Museum of the American Revolution. So if anybody's in the area, hit me up and we can go visit it because it's my favorite spot. And literally anybody who has visited me, I take them to go see it anyway. Its main attraction is George Washington's War Tent which they still have preserved and you can see it at the top of every hour. um, And they tell the story of why it's there. But the point that I wanted to make from one of the most striking exhibits that they have when we were talking about the Iroquois earlier um, who sided with the British is they have an exhibit for the Native Americans who sided with the uh, Americans. And I believe they're called the Oneida clan And they sided with the Americans during the revolution and people from the Oneida clan have been a part of every single American war uh, since then. So it's a very powerful exhibit. And if anybody's in the area wants more, come on down and we can go see it together. Thank you.
6: All right, comrade, thank you for that. What year was it that the Americans started to think of themselves as and in conversation refer to each other as Americans, finally, instead of British?
0: I can't necessarily answer when, you know, we started calling ourselves Americans, but I think following the Seven Years' War and things like the Stamp Act and Tax Acts, Was what really compelled us to have our own independence because we had no representation from the Kingdom of Great Britain. So I would say around the 1750s and 60s was when that identity kind of came about. But I'll let Comrade from New York give an answer as well.
1: Uh, Yeah, so yeah, you're correct. After uh, the Seven Years' War, the French and Indian War, as it was called here, uh, 1763, that's when. Uh, the American identity really started taking off, Um, even though they still wanted to be united with Britain up until the signing of Declaration of Independence, they still had an American identity. They wanted the British to recognize that they had peculiar situations that made them unique, you know, that they would have the same rights as the British, but that they would also have sovereignty over themselves, that they had their own uh, destinies that they needed to uh, guide rather than just the British.
0: All right, thank you, comrade. And comrade General Secretary, you have the floor. Okay,
3: let's go back to history. At one point, it was the 13 stripes, no stars, 13 stripes for the colonies. But where the stars are now, was the British Jack emblem. So they didn't wanna separate in the beginning. They were willing to compromise. And the British, the Tories, we call them the Tories, refused to compromise and they lost everything. Thank you.
0: All right, thank you, comrade. So we'll go ahead and go back to the presentation now. I can go ahead and do this. It's the Newborn USA and the U.S. Constitution. So it's gonna be going over a little bit of the uh, confederated period of the United States, so we'll get into it. The Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union. These were enacted on March 1st, 1781, um, so before even the war was over. Uh, These were passed by the Second Continental Congress, and the Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union were the agreement reached by that Congress in 1777, which had been drafted since July of 1776. This was America's first form of government outside of the Continental Congresses, but it was a government with too little centralization and too much power for the states themselves. Congress could not tax states, only request money. Congress was also unable to regulate foreign trade and interstate commerce. States also had to be requested to supply the Continental Army with troops or funding. Um, so they couldn't have a strong centralized economy or military. It was too loose in that regard. Too many powers were given to uh, the states. So what was the confederated period like? Period between 1781 and 89, when the Constitution came into power, is thus known as the confederated period, and was a test of the Articles of Confederation and anti-federalism. They didn't call it that at the time, that was the force that arose when the constitution was being drafted, but that's basically what was um, being tested here. Uh, The lack of a centralized army or economy caused many problems for the United States in this period and showed the need for a new federalist constitution. During this time, the US resumed trade with Britain, but was unable to remove British forts from American soil because they couldn't um, get a standing army. Um, from these states. Much of American trade was uh, due to the high tariffs imposed by each state. And one thing that did happen was in 1787, the U.S. passed the Northwest Ordinance, establishing a U.S. territory as opposed to a state for the first time, and what would now be known as the Midwest. So you can see like on the side, the states of Wisconsin, uh, Michigan, uh, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, they were becoming the Northwest Uh, territory. Problems mounting. The failures of the Articles of Confederation continued to reveal the necessity of a Federalist government. Attempts were made to amend and reform the Articles of Confederation, but those attempts failed. The economy was mostly based on subsistence farming in the interior and marketing goods to European empires and more on the coasts. Many farmers, soldiers, and more were being saddled with war debts and higher taxes, Plus, coastal elites turning to them when the European empires wanted to trade with a continental currency that did not exist. This led to the Shays Rebellion, which the Continental Army could not put down and said it was stopped by Massachusetts state militia and a local militia. So, they began drafting a Federalist Constitution with the Philadelphia Convention of May of 1897. And in that convention, Washington was elected the presiding officer of that convention, and it was closed to the public um, as they drafted a new constitution, because if they had told the public about this, it would have seemed like they were throwing, you know, the Articles of Confederation to the wind. There would have been outcry against it. But the approval of nine of 13 states was required for the ratification of the U.S. Constitution. And they had delegates from all of those states uh, there for that. In December 1787, uh, Delaware, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey became the first states to ratify. By June 1788, nine states had ratified the U.S. Constitution, and all thirteen would by about I think 1790. So they all did at some point. Um, but the nine that was required had done it by June 1788. So by September of 1788, the Congress approved the new Constitution of the United States, facilitated a presidential election commenced operations of the new federal government with the first Congress in March of 1789, and inaugurated George Washington as the first U.S. president that next month. And we're going to watch a video real quick, which goes over the U.S. Constitution and the Bill of Rights. All right, here's a question
8: for you. When's the last time you and a few friends sat down and tried writing one single document that would determine the way millions of people, over hundreds of years, lived. A document that would structure the government of an entire nation. Yeah, didn't think so. Lucky for you, fewer than 100 men took a crack at it back in 1787 on behalf of the United States of America, hoping to write one document that would contain in it all the laws and instructions for how our government should function. Now, don't worry. Once they had their final draft, they did put it to a vote. There were 13 United States at that time, and at least nine of them would have to ratify the Constitution, meaning they formally agreed to it before it became official. And now, that single document, still known today as our U.S. Constitution, remains the ultimate law of the land, the most sacred code we have for how the government should look. Pretty impressive, right? I mean, no one's perfect, but hey, that we're still running things two hundred and thirty years later means they must have done something right. Now, let's rewind a few years back to 1775 when the Second Continental Congress met in Philadelphia. Besides issuing the world-famous Declaration of Independence, that gathering of delegates planted the first seed of order for the new nation, which they hoped to defend from King George. That seed was a document called the Articles of Confederation, a plan for how the new U.S. government should operate that powered the newborn nation through the Revolutionary War. Unfortunately, it had a major flaw. You see, living under a powerful king had caused the colonists a ton of trouble, so the Congress decided to give the central government, ours is in Washington, D.C. today, very limited power over the individual states. Nine of those thirteen states had to give their approval before the central government could even pass a single law. See where this is going? The weight of the states overwhelmed the central trunk of government, and chaos erupted in newborn America. Having gone from a central government that was way too strong, as in the case of the king, to one that was not strong enough, Americans would need to find a balance, especially as new states joined the country in coming years. They needed a central government that could hold everyone together. And so, because gatherings of delegates from all the colonies or states for very long meetings had been successful in the past, our Founding Fathers decided to call yet another very long meeting in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania once again, called the Constitutional Convention. And 55 delegates from all over the states attended. And their original goal was to revise, not destroy, but revise, the Articles of Confederation, but when they took the pulse of the document and thought it through together they realized they'd be better off starting from scratch. So they torched it and in 1787 they put their heads together to come up with something new. And here's what they decided. The central government would have more power over the states, but it would also be split into three different sections called branches each branch would have its own unique set of powers and with the power divided three ways the central government would never get too strong. The legislative branch made up of two houses full of elected representatives from the different states would come up with proposals for law known as bills. The executive branch made up of the president and his or her closest advisors, a group called the cabinet, would receive those suggestions for law and either veto or reject them or sign off on them, turning bills into law. Judges from the judicial branch would settle any arguments over how individual laws should be applied. They also reserved the right to overrule any laws that violated the Constitution. The way that each branch puts a limit on what the others can do is called the system of checks and balances, and as one further limit on the power of the central government, individual citizens are able to vote on their choice of representatives for the legislative branch and for the president in the executive branch. Now the delegates at the Constitutional Convention knew that they weren't the only ones with good ideas, so they made it possible for future Americans to make changes or amendments to the Constitution. It would take a ton of votes to approve an amendment to the Constitution, but even so, the first changes were made rather quickly. In the year 1788, the Constitution had just been approved and our central government met for the first time. The legislative branch that we call Congress started receiving suggestions immediately from the different states on changes they thought should be made to the Constitution. You see a lot of people were still afraid that the central government would be too strong. Of all the changes suggested by the states, Congress voted to approve 10 of them as amendments to the Constitution. Today we refer to these first ten amendments as the Bill of Rights. They are a shield protecting you from mistreatment by the government. Among other things they guarantee you, the individual, the freedom to believe what you want, to say what you want, to own a weapon if you want, and to be defended in court if someone accuses you of a crime. Without this Bill of Rights or the opportunity to create other amendments in the future, who knows if the Constitution would have survived until today. All right, and with that, we'll stop for another round of questions
9: and comments, and then we'll do new members introductions. Good evening, comrades. So I'm gonna talk about the Bill of Rights, the First Amendment. The First Amendment, it gives us the freedom of speech, the freedom of assembly, the freedom to petition the government, the freedom of religion and the freedom is from religion. So, those last two things freedom of religion, freedom from religion is a definition of secularism. United States is a secular state. It was inspired by the enlightenment of the 18th century philosopher, primarily uh, the French ones, which was Voltaire, Rousseau, Montesquieu. Okay, and the separation of church and state was most important. After 1000 years of religion oppression, either some religion were oppressed or the state would oppress you if you did not follow a certain religion, okay? So um, that's all for now.
0: All right, thank you, comrade. And I wanted to add as well, Um, In the First Amendment, you know, there's freedom of speech, freedom of religion. There's also freedom of expression to express yourself um, however you feel and however you want to. Um, And another thing that I just wanted to say real quick is that the Bill of Rights, even when our civil liberties are attacked, eroded, is still indispensable for us. Um, It's the bourgeois democracy that Dimitrov told us to protect against fascism. So it might not be socialist democracy, um, but it's something
10: in the meantime,
0: and it's something very valuable.
10: Yeah, I was going to say, I'm amazed I wasn't asked to help teach this class, considering I'm a history teacher, and this is what I do every single year, Um, but one thing that people never think about is the fact that multiple socialist parties use the American model, the American Revolution, as a template for revolution against a you know the monarchist power and all the telltale signs of what a revolution a you know a proletarian revolution against capitalism would be like are there right the the inherent contradictions within the monarchies the different competing powers and empires uh, it's all there and the American experiment was one of the first of its kind in the world which is why it's such a historical and significant event and which is why today it is our job to make sure that you know the things that they did wrong, that the founding fathers did wrong, they did wrong and we acknowledge that. But the things that they did right, we need to defend. Uh, and that's all I wanted to say. Really enjoying this class, thank you.
4: All right, thank you, comrade. And Yes, I'd like to point out that uh, interesting fact that until the 14th Amendment, the doctrine, doctrine of incorporation – of incorporating amendments, like uh, the Bill of Rights only applied to actions by the federal government, not state governments. And also I'd like to ask, like, code from Pennsylvania, where, where's the uh, Museum of, of, of the Oneida Indians again then in Philadelphia and their involvement in the American Revolution? All right.
8: Yeah. So yes. uh, with the
11: freedom of expression, it's also mentioned uh, freedom of the press – so entities like ourselves are able to sell the worker um when even even the, uh, we have freedom of press even though there's a monopoly on the press the capitalist press and you know we're even though our newspapers and everything aren't as big at least we still have that right the, even in some other capitalist countries you to this day you st- can't do that um, in, certain, in some places. Um, they have restrictions on um, the press. So that that's another positive. That's all, right. all.
0: Thank you for that, comrade. Comrade General Secretary Angelo from New York, you have the floor.
3: All right. Two things which I as we're listening to this, I'm thinking about how our party operates. Very similar. Very similar to what's the way this has been described of how this government should operate. There's always been a struggle between centralization and decentralization, always in this country. When people come into our party, they don't get it. They come out, they come into the party with the same disease. They think decentralization is a radical thing. And that centralization is an authoritarian right wing thing. When we know that's not true, Uh, every successful socialist government in Europe was centralized. Decentralization actually destroys socialism. It helps capitalism. That's number one I noticed about tonight's class. The other thing about the press, there's one caveat. You cannot have a press if you don't have the money for it. It costs money to run a press, a newspaper. So it's on paper, it's freedom. But in reality, it's those who have the money on the presses. That's why the media in this country is owned by the super wealthy, Murdoch and all these people. Uh, thank you.
7: I wanted to ask, can there be comparisons, John, between the early days of the American Revolution and the early days, or I guess the early days of America and the early days of the Soviet Union? And that's kind of a general question, but what I mean by that is like, they had to get rid of the Articles of Confederation and draft a whole new constitution because it wasn't working as well as they had hoped. So they had to deal with the material reality. And in the Soviet Union, you know, they had to draft a new economic policy. Um, and I guess what it's considered is like, a sort of, a, that doesn't mean like, It's sort of like a tactical retreat on the ideology of the Soviet Union. That's the first comparison that I can think of, but I'm just interested if anybody else can think of any other comparisons. Thank you.
3: Yeah, this is Angelo. The big problem is property, private property. That was the dividing line. Everybody who owned property was considered equal. What about those who did? women did not own property? They weren't allowed to. Blacks did not own property. Indians did not own property, Native Americans. So yeah, that was the difference. I would say the big difference, enshrining private property. Thank you. All
0: right, thank you, comrade. And I see the hands up, but we have to get back to the presentation. So keep them up and we can make sure to get them in the next section. And, And really quickly, I believe we have a new members introduction. So I don't think there's any new comrades here. Let me go back for a second. I don't think that there's any new comrades. I'm just scrolling through. I'm pretty sure I've seen all these uh, comrades before. And uh, thank you for the turnout, by the way, comrades. I know that, you know, we only had this class today this week, but we've got 56 people on here, and that's truly astounding. Give yourself a pat on the back for that. Um, But I don't see any new comrades, so if you are new, uh, go ahead and throw your hand up and we can get uh, these questions back on the screen for you. But for now, we'll go ahead and go forward. And, uh, Karma, would you like to read for this section? Uh, yeah, so
1: this is going to be the polemic against the ultra-left, particularly uh, Gerald Horn's camp, since uh, that's the most relevant to the, to the day. Then... Um, yeah, so we'll. Uh, so some of these are going to be direct quotes from the introduction of this book and then my responses to it. And then uh, we'll have uh, Henry Wynn's pages later on. The communist movement around the world has always held the incomplete revolutionary the- or revolution theory, the theory that the American war for independence. Was only the first installment, which would be completed with the American Civil War. The American Revolution ushered in the world bourgeois democratic revolutions from France to Haiti, from Bolivar's Venezuela to Marti's Cuban Revolution, from the Russian revolutions of 1905 and February 1917 to Vietnam's independence from France and many more. The American Revolution transformed the world. While capitalism was developing already in countries like Britain, it was the American colonies that the national liberation and democratic revolutions were born. Today, however, sections of the left have introduced a theory that the American Revolution was in fact counter-revolutionary. The theories claim to be Marxist-Leninist, but guts the struggle of class struggle and national liberation. So Gerald Horne's book, The Counter-Revolution of 1776, seems to be the biggest contemporary source for disavowing the American Revolution and the Declaration of Independence. His central thesis is that the American Revolution was not a war fought for national liberation, but against abolition. This could not be further from the truth. Up until July 5th, 1775, a year before the Declaration of Independence, the American colonies sought to avoid splitting from the British Empire. The British, who also used slavery, had just finished the Seven Years' War with France and Spain. It was experiencing crippling debt and relied on the colonies, especially the American colonies, to pay that debt. So ask yourself, does it really make sense that the British who colonized and enslaved a large portion of the earth is now willing to break ties with the colonies over the morality of slavery? And uh, these are a couple quotes from his book. Surely the uniting of Europeans from varying ethnicities under the umbrella of whiteness broadened immeasurably the anti-London project with a handsome payoff delivered to many of the anti-colonial participants in the form of land that once was controlled by the indigenous, often stocked with enslaved Africans, not to mention a modicum of civil rights denied to those who were not defined as white. Ironically, the founders of the Republic have been hailed and lionized by the left, right, and center for, in effect, creating the first apartheid state. Ultimately, the mainland, which she refers to the American colonies, model based on racial privilege overwhelmed the London model based on ethnic privilege. London's ethnic approach explicitly sacrificed the interests of the Irish and Scots and Welsh and even the English of certain class backgrounds and made up for the shortfall by seeking to attract Africans to the banner, a policy propelled not least by competition with Madrid. But such a policy could only alienate mainland settlers, driving them toward a unilateral declaration of independence on four July, 1776. And here's my response. Throughout Horn's text, there is never a class analysis of the American Revolution. He simply holds the American people as a monolith, represented solely by the slave owners. Why does he do this? Horn does this because a class analysis would shatter his idealistic narrative. If he had done a class analysis, How could he explain the overwhelming support for the revolution by all classes? How could the leaders of the revolution who were censored from the press by the loyalists able to propagandize American proletariat and petty bourgeois to go to war and risk death and financial instability if they relied solely on grassroots propaganda campaigns? A class analysis would only harm his narrative. Another quote from his book These Africans played a pivotal role in spurring once proud British subjects to revolt against the crown. Thanks to the final colonial governor in Virginia, Lord Dunmore, he was viewed as a villain by the rebels, particularly after his notorious November 1775 or five decree to free and arm enslaved Africans in order to squash the anti-colonial revolt, and here's my response. Here, Horn is using the Dunmore Proclamation that lured slaves to British war efforts as proof that the war was fought over slavery. However, this was merely a tactic of economic war against the colonists by destabilizing the economy. A tactic of war should never be confused with the objectives and principles behind the war." Another quote from his. In other words, from 1756 to 1763, London fought an expensive and largely successful war against Paris and Madrid to oust the latter two from a good deal of North America to the benefit of the colonists then sought to raise taxes to pay for this gigantic venture, only to have the settlers go behind the back of London and conspire with Spain and France against Britain. And here's me. In this quote, Horn is showing his apologia to the British monarchy by glorifying the, quote unquote, valiant effort of the British to defend the colonies from the French and Spanish. How absurd. Horn has it completely backwards. The colonies were dragged into war that had been serving British interests for decades prior. The British did not care about the colonists. It was worried about monopolizing the market for itself. And uh, then uh, some uh, passages from a strategy for a black agenda by Henry Winston, who was the chairman of the CPUSA from 1966 to 1986. It seems paradoxical that the recent avalanche of books and articles portraying the Black condition in the U.S. as that of a colony has been issued by the same monopoly-controlled book and newspaper publishers who use most of the rest of their ideological output to deny the imperialist nature of the U.S. state monopoly capitalism. It seems paradoxical, but it is not. This development marks a new state of sophistication in the ideological offensive of US imperialism. The colony theory is particularly useful to the monopolist because it appears to be so radical. In fact, it contains the admission that the oppression of Black people in the US is comparable to the colonial oppression in Asia, Africa, and Latin America. This emphasis on the intensity of Black oppression gives the colony theory its ring of authenticity. But this admission of oppression is not as candid, one might even say benign, as it might seem. By promoting the colony theory, the white ruling class aims to define and determine the direction of the black liberation movement. In yet another form, the monopolists are striving to prevent Black people themselves from defining the specific features that constitute the special oppression they experience. By analogy, this theory directs attention to those aspects of the Black condition in the US, which most closely resemble colonial conditions. These similarities are so powerful that one's attention may be diverted from what is unique in the status of the Tripoli oppressed Black peoples in colonial or semi-colonial situations past or present. Via the colony analogy and variations on this unscientific anti-Marxist theme, U.S. imperialism's ideologists are trying to influence the Black liberation movement into adopting a self-defeating strategy. While the U.S. internal black colony theory resembles a winning strategy for an oppressed majority living in a colony, it would mean certain defeat for an oppressed minority, which has indeed been the black condition for more than 350 years in this part of the world. The supposedly quote-unquote revolutionary, even so-called quote-unquote Marxist, books on this colony analogy now in mass circulation were written by white radicals who have abandoned the struggle against racism and by black radicals who seek rhetorical shortcuts to liberation. By portraying the status of the black people in the U.S. as a colony, these radicals assist the ruling class's aim of diverting the black liberation movement from a winning strategy, one that would advance the self-organization of the black liberation movement, and simultaneously combine this independent strength with that of the allies, the working class, black, brown, yellow, red and white together with all the poor and exploited in a new formation. This is the basis for an anti-monopoly coalition. The only strategy that opens a way to a future without racism, exploitation, poverty or oppression and then the chapter Genesis of the colony theory. Among the radicals, black and white, who have popularized the colony theory are Eldridge Cleaver, Huey Newton, Regis Debray, James Foreman, Tom Hayden, Harold Cruz, James Boggs, Stokely Carmichael, and Robert L. Allen. It is ironic that many of these radicals who claim that Marxism is European in origin and must be revised in order to apply to the Black people in the US advanced theories based on revisions of Marxism by such Europeans as Herbert Marcuse, Leon Trotsky, and Regis Debray, as well as the Trotsky-like revisions to be found in the thought of Mao Zedong. It was especially under the influence of Marcuse and Maoism that the new left radicals began to be attracted to one or another pseudo-revolutionary theory, including the concept of an internal colony of black people in the US. While Marcuse's ideas are not identical with the thought of Mao, the views of both stimulated anti-Marxist misconceptions of the world revolutionary process the historic role of the working class and its relationship to liberation struggles of oppressed people, and the imperative need for strategies based on the specific features and historical development of each country, each working class and each national liberation movement. During every upsurge in the people's struggles, especially those of the mainly working class Black people, there is a more extensive activation of countermeasures designed to sustain disunity and block alliance between black and white workers, together with the black people as a whole against corporate monopoly.
8: All
0: right, and with that, we'll go ahead and stop for our last round of questions and comments and wrap up for tonight. So try to keep questions to 60 seconds if you can, uh, just so that we can get through all of these. Yes, correct. Uh, there are formal overlaps
12: between the founding of the uh, American states and the Russian state. Uh, when we were first founded, we were a confederal organization. Uh, when the USSR in 1922 was first founded, it was also it's called an asymmetrical confederation because the political, where politics uh, flowed from was the Communist Party, the Politburo, it was a singular thing, but it was a uh, membership of uh ukraine belarus russia and the uh, federation of the transcaucasians uh, uh, uh and th- they were voluntary members they could succeed whenever they wanted to now this is just formal our essential uh socius our essential center Uh, is much different. Uh, You know, the the Soviet Union is founded on the Soviets' collective farms. They went through a traditional orthodox Marxist development uh, through feudalism into capitalism, into uh, imperialism, etc. And then uh, America did not. uh, We got to skip some steps due to British colonialism, similar to like Australian stuff.
0: All right. Thank you for that, comrade.
11: Yeah. In, in regards to the counter-revolutionary theory, as far as being kind of Gerald Horn talking about like the slavery aspect and kind of in some ways kind of being pro-British, in my understanding, and someone please correct me if I'm wrong, it seems to me that like the British Empire then just kind of turned to colonizing places like India and stuff to make up for the losses for abolition.
1: Well, I mean, India was already colonized. The British East India Company was uh, centralized in India. That was, uh, I think, since the late 1500s. I I don't remember the exact uh, timeline, but they did intensify their uh, exploitation of all their other colonies to make up for the loss of the U.S. states. These... um, people who push the counter-revolution theory, they claim that the British empire and the countries that remained with them were more progressive. Well, first of all, progress in a Marxist sense doesn't mean a moral, it's not a moral indicator. It's talking about what drives history towards the socialist revolution. But I should say, on a moral note, the British, they only ended their slave trade the same year the Americans ended the slave trade. They finally abolished slavery in 1834, which was before the U.S. But, you know, in their colonies, it was still going on. They didn't have any control over the merchants. So, I, yeah, I just want to say it's very hypocritical of them.
0: Thank you, comrades.
12: Uh, yes, I just wanted to say <clears throat> regarding the Gerald Horn piece. Um when I started getting into like politics and organizing and stuff like that, I used to think that um everybody who has a podcast, everybody who runs a meme page, everybody who's online and talking about socialism and marxism knows what they're talking about. But um after shortly after joining the party, I realized that's not the case. And um, I think that to someone who's kind of, you know, getting into this stuff, uh, Gerald Horn's analysis, if they don't know anything, or if they don't know mo- much more, they Gerald Horn's analysis seems appealing. And I think that a lot of this ultra leftism stuff comes from just not really an understanding of what the American Revolution is, and its effects on the world. So that's all I wanted to say.
0: Yeah, you're completely correct. All right? Thank you, comrades. And yeah, it's a It's a result of looking at history through the lens of 2023, the way we think things should be right now. We can recognize that there were things at the time that weren't so progressive. I mean, slavery itself, you know, just on its own was not progressive and it later got abolished. You know, the indigenous genocide that followed the revolution, it wasn't progressive, but you know, it tapered off to some extent. So going on culturally, but we can recognize that and be dialectical about it without throwing um, the revolution into the trash like some ultra leftists would like to do. Try to keep this brief, but um, as a history teacher, I'm trying
11: to give a little bit of context for a few things. So, to counter Gerald Horn, while yes, he's correct about pointing out the Dunliff proclamation that brought a lot of Southern slaves to the British side, the flip side is in the North, where slavery is present but much weaker most Blacks fought for the patriots. They were argued and were promised uh, liberation. Vermont and Massachusetts gave abolition in their states in the 1770s and 80s. Okay, so that's one point. Um, So yes, while it seems that uh, the British may be slightly more progressive, if you actually look at the record, they weren't. So what happened to all the slaves who fought for the British during the Revolution? While most of them were abandoned at port, even though the British promised them passage somewhere else. Uh, Those who were taken to port were either shipped to Nova Scotia, where quite a few of them died. The ones who lived, survived, and built a thriving community, but with racial prejudice for many generations. And the ones who left Nova Scotia went to Sierra Leone, where they were used for British colonial purposes. And the other thing, I'm going to try to make this real quick, the other thing that's important to know about all these processes, particularly the Constitution, and the creation of the central government, that helps lead America to be industrialized when it does. The central government can negotiate policies and infrastructure and trade between states, and that allows American industry to thrive, to have these connections of resources across our vast areas. Thank you.
0: All right. Thank you for that, comrade.
13: Thanks. So I just wanted to point out how you don't hear the ideology that Henry Winston and other ones like John Pittman, Comrade John Pittman has really good articles on this issue on you know the, the settler theory and a communist uh, strategy for a black agenda. You don't find that book. That book is a really hard book to find. And I don't think that's a coincidence. The strategy for a black agenda, I, I think on uh, most places, it's like 50 bucks to buy it. Yet you can find, you know, like the Sakai book anywhere. You can find um, all these settler theories. They're easily accessible. I don't think you have to be conspiratorial to just see why I think, like myself included, I think I believed some of that settler stuff when I first started becoming interested in political theory and whatnot. I don't think that's a coincidence either. Um, And then it's probably not a coincidence like what Gus Hall said about how, What the Maoists did to the anti-imperialist movement is exactly what washington and um the imperialists wanted they wanted to break away from the soviet union so that they could you know divide and conquer i don't think that's a coincidence either that's all
0: thank you comrade and i just wanted to say real quick and add that within liberal circles and ultra leftist circles there's this attempt to basically reframe history uh the united states history as just a history of racism, and have race be the primary contradiction. Um, You know, people call Marxists, this derogatory thing of class reductionists, but it's almost race reductionism, because instead of it, you know, bringing it all back down to class, which is how all of the suppression manifests, they go ahead and try to bring it all back to racism. And the, you know, American history has always just been a struggle between the oppressed black class and the you know, ruling white class. And that's not, that only encapsulates a part of history. And some of it is just blatantly not true. And you see it not just with the Gerald Horn thing, but with this liberal thing, the 1619 project, where they go ahead and go, oh, ever since the first uh, slaves arrived with the slave trade, it's always just been a racist society. So throw it all into the fire. And that's something that we don't uphold. So I wanted to bring that up. And all the demographics, all the oppressions that we see of different uh, specific groups happen under the class struggle and class oppression. And we always need to bring it back to that. So,
5: yeah, I wanted to touch on this on like the divorcing of Marxist analysis and an understanding of history. You know, it's funny that they bring up this whole thing of like race reductionist and all of this that were racist and this and that. If we are Marxist, we hold true that the class struggle has progressed history throughout human history. And by them deciding to pick and choose when they apply this, this has been their abandoning of any type of actual left ideology. Everything we talk about, these people that are pro-settlers, that are anti-Russia, all of these are the same issue, especially with this Gerald Horn type stuff. They've all been infected with this plague of anti-Americanism, which in some cases is justified. But, you know, to be an American and to be on the left and to abandon your fellow countrymen because they are white Americans or they do this or they do that, they supported whoever, it's it's a failure on the part of the American left, the non-Bolshevik left, you know, but these are all the same kind of people, you know just wanted to kind of express that and emphasize that, that a lot of these same ideological opponents are all in the same circles. Ninety. All right. Thank you, comrade. Oh, yeah,
4: I'd like to point out, uh, like, Dr. D'Angelo, like, mentioned, like, uh, Blacks and uh, women not being able to hold property. I think, like, widows and single women could hold property and some Blacks owned property. And I also asked, like, uh, uh, what was that other guy you mentioned to, uh, not Henry Winston? someone, was it Pittman or something? Talked about the settler theory. Thank you.
13: Yeah, it was John Pittman. He, okay. he was a communist for the CPUSA. There's also really good, um, sorry, there's a really good recording of him talking about his life. Just look up John Pittman in the Tiamat Museum in New York.
4: Was he married to Margaret Pittman? I, I think I have the one of their books about like uh, East Germany. Thanks. All right. Thank you, comrades. There's something that I wanted to say
0: real quick. On the thing of a lot of these ultra-leftists being anti-American and trying to revise American history, the interesting thing that I've observed is they do it either in a past tense way or in a domestic way, where in America, they hate America, they hate the flag and the you know revolution and all of our history, and they go ahead and discard the wheat with the chaff. But when it comes to foreign issues, when it comes to war and peace, or it comes to hegemony around the world, who do they objectively side with? The U.S. State Department. So you're not very anti-American if every other time we look at you, you're siding with the U.S. State Department. Um, I think it's just cynicism and a bit of national nihilism um, on their part.
4: I want to say a good class as always. And, and another thing uh, I would like to add as a uh, response to uh, someone asking about what happened to the colonies after the success of the rebel As a consequence, you had a lot of people who were uh, convicts who would otherwise be exported to the world who...
0: Uh, we're, were sent to to Australia and that's just one again great right. thank you
1: comrade uh yeah so I wanted to uh, just make a few points with um uh, the that section of slides the approach I did I didn't want to tail Gerald Horn and uh you know as far as facts goes Gerald Horn did have most of the facts that Communists already agreed with What he did do, though, is that he distorted history by omitting facts about the revolution and focused entirely on the slave uprisings that were happening. Uh, So as far as facts go, he had it correct, but the historiography was completely incompatible. That was one thing. Second of all is if you read his book, he uses very academic language. In fact, a lot of the words that he used in it, I've never heard ever used in a sentence before. I didn't wanna bring this up initially because I didn't know if it was uh, necessary, but it's very obvious that he was targeting an academia background. He wasn't targeting the working class when he wrote this book. I, I wish I could uh, bring up a list of some of those words. You can read it yourself, but it's very obvious he was targeting, you know, the academic radicals and not the working
0: class. All right. Well, thank you for that, comrade. And thank you as well for doing that section of the class going over Comrade Horn's um, work and polemicizing against
9: it. Yes, comrades, I want to touch on that uh, settler thing. And uh, our comrade Elizabeth, she noticed one thing, that the Ben & Jerry's Company, on the 4th of July, that's an international conglomerate, you know, with Unilever. And they tweeted something uh, that says, the United States was founded on stolen land from the indigenous people. And basically, they're pushing the land back program theory of the ultra-left. And that's very interesting that a strong corporation, capitalist corporation, would do that, would align with ultra-left, you know? The stolen land theory, which, if you think about it, would apply from the Bering Strait all the way to uh, La Tierra del Fuego in Argentina. Every single country is stolen land. That's a lot of countries. Thank you, comrade.
0: Thank you, and I just want to comment real quick on that and say, You know, that's been another ultra leftist, you know, idea or campaign has been the land back thing. And to be honest, I've never got a clear answer from anybody about what the actual policy proposals are. It goes from everything just as simple and vague as give the land back to basically them describing an indigenous ethno state and um, just having an indigenous person be a leader. Um, doesn't mean they're going to bring progressive politics. Fulgencio Batista was a native Cuban, and you see how well that worked out for Cuba. And I just want to say, you know, I think that I think that we as Marxists can understand that something like the indigenous genocide that occurred um, was unjustified. It was a colonial war. I don't know that I don't I don't think that Marxists ever, you know, stand by colonialist wars, but we can recognize the progressiveness of something like, the American Revolution, or the American Civil War, the War of 1812, and recognize that those are justified conflicts that are separate from the genocide of the indigenous people. And we're already 247 years into this history, so we've just got to figure out a way to get along and figure out these contradictions now without any kind of crazy programs of You know, sending people here or there, giving full control from this person to that person. You know, uh, we got to figure out a dialectical solution to it.
8: Thank you for watching this full length class from the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. For more information or to join our free classes, visit our website, check out our YouTube, listen to our streams on Spotify, and chat with us on Reddit.